Would you do so to take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 40. If you'll turn to the Gospel of Luke. And this is a little bit of a lengthy read, but we'll uh, get through it. Luke chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 1 through verse 40. As is my custom, I'll be reading out the New King James Version. God's Word declares, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the land of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. They came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those that heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons." And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people to Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. 
and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a uh, husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Well, as I promised last week, we are doing a little switcheroo on you. We are leaving our study in Jeremiah. We're not leaving it. We're shifting it to Sunday night. And we are bringing forward um, from Sunday night our study in Galatians for this morning. And I think you will understand it very quickly. Uh, Galatians chapter 4 is where you're at in your Bibles. Let's begin reading verse 1. It says, Now I say that the heir... As long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. But as under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning as we start our, begin our study. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word this morning. And we do pray, as always, that your spirit might direct us into your truth and uh, grant us his illumination by uh, your promises that those that ask would receive that. And Lord, we do pray that not only would we understand these words and their meaning, uh, but that we might uh, have a willing heart to subject ourselves to them, to let them come into our very lives, not only into our thinking, but into our living, and that we might conform ourselves more and more to your Son, Jesus Christ, because of this time we've spent together. Lord, we do pray that your saints might be built up, strengthened, that we might abound in in your work. And Lord, we again commit this time as an opportunity to strengthen ourselves in your word, to your glory, in Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, obviously from Galatians 4, you can see our focused passage that we uh, zipped by last Sunday night knowing that we would be coming back to it. And that will be in verses uh, 4 and 5. And we want to give you a little bit of a workup to this, as well as giving you... I cannot stand still and do this. As well as giving you the benefits of it. And so we find that um, all through Galatians, our focus has been on the means of our faith, our means of our salvation being focused upon justification by faith, not by works. And remember that the people of Galatia had been infiltrated, if you will, by a body of people who wanted to re-enlist them to keep the law, 
or enlist them to keep the law in the case of the Gentiles. That is, that they, you could not possibly be in a right relationship with God if you weren't keeping the Mosaic law um, in addition to trusting in Christ. That is, that belief in Christ is good, it's right, he is the Messiah, but he's the Jewish Messiah who is calling you to the Jewish law. And therefore, you cannot really be a real follower of Christ if you're not first a follower of the law. And in fact, that if you are a follower of Christ, you must of necessity be a follower of the law. And this they bore out in expecting that all Christians be circumcised, that they be keeping various aspects of the law, and uh, from food laws um, to ceremonial laws. Um, And so uh, Paul is addressing this, and his whole focus is, how did you come to know Christ? Was it through the law, or was it through faith? And going back to really a time before there was the law, uh, and going back to the real father of Israel, and which isn't Moses, it is Abraham. And taking us back to Abraham, and saying, was Abraham justified by the law that did not exist for hundreds of years, or was he justified by faith? Was he declared righteous because he believed and trusted in God? And this has been the focal point of Paul's argument, um, as well as the fact that the law brings death and brings guilt. It, It points the finger and says, Aha! At us, see, you are not up to the standard of God, and it could not bring righteousness. And therefore... God sent his son. We've looked at the kind of salvation God wanted to provide in the midst of that, that it wasn't a salvation that brought you into Judaism or into uh, the land of Israel, into the law, but it was a salvation full of liberty and full of the word redemption we're going to see here in our text this morning. But it is a law that sets us or, I'm sorry, it's a salvation that sets us free from the law. And this is going to be very important understanding of the birth narrative of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. And this is where uh, we understand Luke's focus uh, and where it derives from. Remember that Luke is a co-minister with Paul. He is traveling with Paul. Um, this Galat- book of Galatians is an early writing. Um, it is certainly evident that it, Paul's influence on Luke's description of the narrative of Christ's birth is there, that it is, uh, has its effect. And this passage, I am convinced, um, was, if not uh, sitting before Luke, was certainly in his mind, and certainly the words that we have here in these two verses are things that Paul taught regularly, that as Paul, or I'm sorry, as Luke penned the narrative of our Savior's birth, having done all of that research that he had done uh, in interviewing uh, to enable that him to be able to accurately represent that, um, wanted to emphasize the four things we have in these two verses. That these four principles so influenced Luke that he wanted to make sure that they were all in his narrative. That they're all there in Luke chapter 2. And I have to believe that while they are in reverse order 
in your Bible that Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 were the theological underpinnings, the teaching that he had gotten years after year and letter after letter as we saw the comparison of Galatians to Colossians and, and to um, uh, Romans. We saw that last Sunday night. And this is, a, this is consistency in Paul's message that its impact on Luke was to make sure that at the narrative of Christ's birth that it be explained and communicated repeatedly these very principles. Because the salvation that God intended for man was one not of minimal work. He didn't do the minimum for us of just forgive us our sins. It would have been enough for you and I to simply be washed of our sin stain. But that wasn't enough for God. And that's how much he loved us. Is that he wanted a spectacular package, gift for you. Now we have all been shopping, I think, by now. If you haven't, good luck. (laughs) And we've all been trying to find the perfect gift. And the heart of God is no different. In eternity past, his consideration of what he would do for those that would trust in his son was, I want to give them the best gift I can. That gift is well described for us in the book of Ephesians, uh, chapters 1 and 2, where Paul uh, just goes and just eloquently and extensively says, describes the fullness of God's planned salvation. Here's what he has elected for you to receive. Here's what he, this is the the present that he purchased for you because the purchase price is going to be so exorbitant. The blood of his son. And so Paul's going to look at bookend both uh, ends, both sides of this few verses on Christ's coming with the wonderful package, the, the present, the gift that God has given to us by the Son, Jesus Christ. And that is not just a minimal salvation, but the best gift he could give you to make you co-heirs with Jesus Christ, to make you have the righteousness of Christ applied to you, that you are, he wants to make you not his servants in the kingdom, but his sons in his kingdom. He wants you to be into his very family, not at any arm's length, but in this very intimate relationship. This is the gift that he wants, not just forgiving of your sins, not just uh, a place somewhere in heaven that you can crawl around or, or live meagerly, but rather this place of honor. And this is the fullness of God's love for us, to give us this kind of salvation. And so he has described that at the end of chapter 3 and beginning of chapter 4, and he will persist in that as we get into verses 6 and following, this wonderful salvation. But here in the middle of talking about this wonderful gift that we are given, we find out the cost. And we find four principles here, four truths that we're going to see in Luke chapter 2 that Luke wants to emphasize for us in the narrative of his birth, but here's the theology of it. In verse 4, let me read again. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So I find four things here that Luke wants to emphasize. Number one is that it was at just the right time. Here in Galatians, 
Paul uses the term when the fullness of time had come. Uh, That is when everything in the law and in the prophets, everything that they pointed to, everything had started falling into place. And as we go back into Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, if you want to, you might want to have to work your Bible back and forth from these two. Here, I'm going to get my marker and put it in Galatians. We're going to be back and forth from Galatians to Luke. You probably figured that out already, though. Uh, We find that Luke, different than the other Gospels, takes a lot of time, an entire chapter, to go through all that God did to bring the capstone to the fullness of this time. That at just the right time, that while Israel had all these years of desiring a Messiah and the prophets had spoken, that then there comes this work in the in the life of Zacharias and Elizabeth um, the to, to give birth to John the Baptist and all of the work of the angels coming to to Mary to communicate this to her of what is going to come of, of though it's a year away nine months minimum um, God has laid the groundwork and this is just again the very end of the groundwork God has laid because the fullness of time stretches us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And a lot of people ask, well, why didn't God send Jesus? Why didn't he just send Jesus like the second generation? Why wait so long? And I don't claim to be able to fully answer that question, and that is something that we can discuss with our Lord when we're in his presence, maybe. Um, but God's word makes it very clear that he had a plan. He wasn't making it up along the way. He declared it that as soon as sin entered the world, there would be a redeemer. There would be one who would take away our sins, who would bring us into the family of God. And that was one that we're going to be describing here as born of a woman. Uh, and so he gives the promise right away. And the indication there is that Eve believed the promise, and we can see that by how she named her children to some degree. She accepted that promise as true, that by faith she would look for that one who was the seed of a woman. And so God comes in and says, yes, Satan seems to have gotten the victory here, and you are being sent out of the garden, and now you will begin your body to deteriorate and death will lay hold of you, and you've already been broken in your relationship with me as you've been hiding out in the bushes. But I'm going to fix all that, and the time will come. But there was something more necessary that had to occur before man was ready to receive a Savior. That while that first prophetic utterance laid out the promise, it was evident that God had some instruction to do for mankind before we were really ready to receive his son. You might say it took him 4,000 years to get ready. No, it took him 4,000 years to get us ready. Because the fact is, is that we see within the hearts of men a great need. And that great need is, is couched in our pride. And as we look through the Old Testament, we look through those thousands of years between that first promise and its fulfillment, 
we see a very necessary process, very deliberate and very forthright to demonstrate the hardness of men's hearts, the rebellion and the deep-seatedness of our sin, so that we could recognize that we have an incredible need. You see, if Christ, if God had brought the Christ very early on in the history of man, we may have looked at that because men were still living very long lives. Men were had not seen death extensively. They really hadn't seen it in the animal kingdom very much. Um, they weren't eating animals before the flood. Um, the animals weren't eating each other, from what we could tell, largely. And we have a very wonderful environment. And what an easy thing it would be for men to say, I don't really need that at all. I don't really have that great of a need. Consider a man named Cain who kills his brother and still thinks he has an argument with God over it. And this is a God that is speaking to him audibly. This is the kind of pride that demands God be very deliberate in demonstrating the great need that exists. And as we have been focusing on for years here, um, if we are not communicating to people their need, they have no reason to hear about a Savior. Because if they don't think they need anything, they're not looking for any redemption if they don't think they're enslaved. And so we have a very powerful presentation throughout God's Word. We have history to teach us and to guide us into understanding just how horrible our condition is. That we can't keep the law. When the law came, we couldn't keep it. God, if you just give me a list of do's and don'ts, (laughs) then we'll take care of it ourselves. Just give us the list. Well, he gave them the list. 600 some things. Not very hard. 600 some things. That's not... We have more things than that in our building codes. We have more things than that to drive your car. There are more than 600 laws to deal with driving your car. So 600 laws, 600 things. There we go. We'll boil them down to here's 10. We talk about the Ten Commandments. Um, but there was about 600 some total uh, that's enveloped all those other facets of social life, family life, uh, worship life. Um, so here we go. Um, can't keep it. We can't keep it. God gives us this list and we can't keep it. And we learn that we are incapable of meeting God's righteous demands ourselves. And I say it took hundreds of years to teach us that? Yes. Because couched also right there sitting in that love seat with pride is stubbornness. It's there. And so God is using the law to tutor us in our sin and to demonstrate that to us. And Galatians talks about extensively. And Luke here wants to show that God was very deliberate and that everything was put in place so that at the right time, not only the conditions on earth uh, in terms of history and the and the accomplishment of prophecy, and that's another facet uh, that we needed. We needed to see that this is a plan of God, and how do we know this is the Messiah? How do we know this is the only way to Christ or to God? How do we know this is the one way of salvation? And again, we have 
all the prophets foretelling hundreds of years ahead. Why? So that we would know that God's plan was sure. That we would look for this one, even as today is second coming. Why did he give us so much information so far ahead? So that when it all started happening, we would have confidence and sureness, not in ourselves, but in God's word and in his plan. So we have this laid out before us by Luke, very deliberately showing the build-up to Christ's birth through Mary and her cousins. And, and we find that uh, the development of the whole ministry of John the Baptist and his influence, his impact upon those that uh, would be looking for the Messiah. Well, Galatians says not only that the fullness of time had come, um, that God sent forth his son, but he sent him born of a woman. And here's our second truth about Christ that is foundational to the liberty that we have. And you might say, that's necessary for the liberty? Yes, it is. Um, just as much as the fullness of time meant that the law wasn't a part of our deliverance, but rather part of our condemnation, so now the born of the woman is vital to understanding our liberty in Christ. Uh, why was the virgin birth necessary? And hopefully all of us in this room understand it to some degree, but let's just make sure we cover that base this morning. The virgin birth was necessary, absolutely necessary, because sin is inherited from your father. Very simple. When Adam and Eve gave birth to their son, their son was not in the image of God. It says that he was in the image of Adam, the image and likeness of Adam. God says, I, no, I, I'm not letting you say that anymore about your children. You can say that about yourselves, Adam and Eve. You're the image of God, but your children are in your image. Except for one, and that is the begotten of God, the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And so because our sin nature and our, men have called us original sin, is inherited from our fathers, we realize immediately that, well, Christ cannot have an earthly father. And so, again, in the promise is the seed of the woman, and Paul goes in and says it must be born of a woman. Uh, That is without a man. And we come in to Luke's narrative, and we immediately see the focus and the energy um, given that this is a virgin that we're talking about. This is not just, and some try to say it just means a young woman. No, it is very purposeful that they did not know each other. She had not entered into relations with a man, and so she had found favor with God, and she's going to conceive, and she um, asks the question in verse 34 of chapter 1, how can this be since I do not know a man? I don't know how much more clearly she could describe virginity than I do not know a man. So how is it possible? It is the impossible And thus the Holy One of Israel is truly the Holy One because he is not a descendant of Adam through that male line of inheriting sin, but a descendant of God, the Son of God. 
Why is that vitally important to us in our liberty of Galatians? Is because the law follows the male line. You follow the male line and you find that Jesus is the Son of God. And when he says, now I'm going to bring you into that same family, that we are no longer the sons of Adam, but we now become the sons of God ourselves in Christ. That we take on that kind of liberty that we in, look forward to a time, um, and in fact, we actually do enjoy a time right now, but we look forward to its conclusion, to its completion um, in heaven, where that sin stain will not no longer be felt. It will no longer be present. Its power is gone now. It has been slain. Let there be no question in that. That if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, the the, the sin stain, that sin nature, says Paul says, has been put to death. That as Christ had none, he shares all things with us. And he says, I'm going to put to death that sin nature, but it hangs around as a corpse, powerless unless we cuddle up to it, which we too often do. But we wait for that day when that corpse is put off, when this flesh is... taken off and we put on our new man we look forward to that day but we find that the law can never do that this is the liberty that god gives us is that we are free from the power of sin its presence is all around us we can't debate that but its power is gone it has no leg to stand on there's nothing there for the holy one the one who was without sin from conception to resurrection. We are one with him. We share in his inheritance. That that is the righteousness that he imputes to us. And hence, born of a woman takes us into our liberty from the law of the flesh, from the elements of this world from the philosophies of this age. Well, the third declaration we have here, not only that it was the fullness of time had come, not only born of a woman, but point blank, born under the law. You might say, well, Jesus was born without a sin nature, therefore the law meant nothing to him. But in fact, Luke goes out of his way to explain to us just how careful from even his very youngest days they were to keep the law to demonstrate that God has fulfilled the law on our behalf as no other could or has look with me in chapter 2 as Luke remember the student of Paul begins to communicate this to us. Look at verse 21. When Jesus was eight days old, the eight days were complete for the circumcision of the child. His name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when our days of purification, look at the next few words, according to the law of Moses were completed. 
They brought him to the Gentiles. Verse 23, or brought him to Jerusalem, not the Gentiles. Brought him to Jerusalem. Look at verse 23. As is written in the law of the Lord. Look at verse 24. According to what is said in the law of the Lord. Do we get the, get the force of what Luke is trying to communicate to you? Is that he is being brought in to this walk with God in this uh, relationship by a keeping perfectly of the law, even within the context of his family life. We find that Paul talks about the reason we are free from the law is because the law has been fulfilled. Its requirements, its standards have been met. We can't meet the standards, ever. Even in our current condition, as as the adopted ones, uh, with, the, with the power of sin having been put to death, even then, we are still struggling. And therefore, the law cannot redeem and cannot give us assurance of our salvation even. Those that would say, well, it can't redeem you, but it's certainly it's the keeping of the law that confirms you as a believer. No. Christ did that too. (laughs) He kept the law on our behalf. It's part of the imputed righteousness of Christ is not only um, this in essence righteousness and the the destruction or the, the putting to death of the sin nature, but it is also his righteousness is that that he has fully kept the law. And Luke, throughout his book, we just looked at the birth narrative this morning. Throughout the book of Luke, we see Luke's emphasis that Jesus was a keeper of the law. That no one could put a finger on him and say, Aha, you didn't keep that law. You didn't do this correctly. But rather that Jesus was the one who fulfilled the law for us. And the liberty that that gives us now is a recognition that all the requirements of the law are met, not by me, but by the one who came and lived on my behalf. And again, I am a borrower. I have borrowed the law-keeping of Christ and made it my own. That he has kept the law for me. He has accomplished it. He has fulfilled it. And it stands a testimony in the heavenly realms that Christ is a complete sacrifice. Without original sin and without sin that he committed that's why born of the woman born under the law point to both facets of our sinful state are cared for by christ who was guarded from either and thus he met the standard of god and it is foolishness in fact it is wickedness for us to go and think I don't need Jesus, or if I do take Jesus, I still have to, I can keep the law. I can do it. Oh, what a wicked condition. And this is why Paul is so adamant in Galatians. What are you thinking, going back to keeping the law, thinking that somehow that's the way to please God? That's the way that we walk is by the law? No, we walk by the Spirit. It is the presence of the Spirit within us, the Spirit of God at work with our spirit. That's how we have confidence in our salvation, not by a list of rules to keep. That would never do it. 
my wife and I were sharing a little information. We, we, this time of year, of course, we get all this, all these uh, letters, annual letters, Christmas letters from friends and family that uh, we have, that have grown dear to us over the years, but are very distant to us. And we try to keep track of them and we enjoy their Christmas letters and sometimes pictures that they send to us and just uh, rehearsing uh, in several of the family's lives the impact of going from a place of liberty to a place of legality and the effect it had on their children, now that their children are adults. We look at that and we say, they're not walking for the Lord. How did this happen? But we saw in our friends that we still count very dear to us this movement, for whatever reason, from a place of balance and liberty to this place of well we have to we're going to use this list and this is and if you don't keep this list then therefore you're not right with god and while i recognize that that is can be their preference we cannot make it the law and they made it the law for their family and their children rebelled against it because it doesn't work No one can meet that kind of standard. And so they rebel. If I want my preferences to be this, then then that is my choice. But it is not a keeping, it is not a law I can impose on any others. It is the Spirit of God striving with my spirit to lead me into truth and righteousness. And God has not appointed for me to be the Spirit in your life not even in my children's lives, is for them to strive with the Spirit in their life to come to a knowledge of the truth and of righteousness and how it should be borne out in their walk, in their living. And I'm not talking about areas of, of blatant sinfulness, but we're talking about these areas that, that we find some liberty, but we may be concerned, but we see that and the Spirit works in us. And we strive after holiness. We want to be walking in the light as He is in the light. That we want the best and not just mediocre for God. Um, that has to come into the heart. And it doesn't get there from external force. And we are saddened to see some of our dearest friends from college whose children are not really living for the Lord. We are reminded that it cannot be forced. It must be received by a heart sensitive to the Spirit's moving. And that is liberty, believe it or not. That is the the power of the force of Jesus Christ's righteousness in us that's apart from the law because he was born under the law, kept the law for us so that we could now internalize Christ and exude righteousness instead of having people trying to force righteousness on us that we could internalize Christ. It doesn't work that direction. It's the other way. We internalize Christ, the spirit within us, then we exude righteousness. That's not the law because it's way, way, way beyond the law. As we have shared in Galatians extensively already that our righteousness is greater 
than that of the Pharisees, than, greater than the law, because I'm not worrying about murdering people. I'm more concerned about loving people instead of hating them. You guard your heart from hate. Murder isn't an option. Never comes into play. Never. And so our redemption is one that comes at God's timing. It comes by one born of a woman that we might be delivered from original sin. It is born under the law that we might be delivered from our acts of sin, our breaking of the law, our lawlessness. And then in verse 5, we have a fourth description of this one to come, this son, this gift. In verse 5, it says to redeem those who were under the law. So he came with a purpose to redeem us that we might receive the adoption of sons. And of course, we have here in the Gospel of Luke this whole idea of the redemption, 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 redemption that he just keeps revisiting from angels and prophets and prophetesses, um, from Zacharias and Elizabeth, from Mary's song. We have all of these talking about what term? Redemption. (laughs) That he is buying us. He has paid the price. And this is why you are free. God has paid the price of your slavery. He has purchased you out of being slaves to sin. He has purchased you out of that that you were were entrapped into and, and could not release yourself from. No matter how hard you worked, you couldn't have released yourself from that. And so you were trapped there. And he came in and paid that price in full. He came in the perfect timing of God, born of the virgin, keeping the law. Why? To pay the price for we who are in bondage. I don't know a more powerful way to describe the wonderful gift of God than to say he took you from slavery and didn't just set you free. (laughs) It doesn't say that, does it? It's not just to set you free. If I went into a slave market, I know you think that that doesn't exist in our world today, but there are some. Uh, If I went into a slave market in some places in our world still today or historically in this country, and I went in and and pulled out gold coins and bought this slave and set them free and said, you're a free man now. We would say, that's a great thing to do for somebody, isn't it? That's tremendous. And we would applaud such a person. And there have been people who have done that historically who come in and pay the slave's uh, auction price. And when they receive the slave as their property, they say, I don't claim any ownership over you. You are a free person. I set you free. And you say, wow, what a person. But that's not what God did. That wasn't enough. No way. He paid the price to set us free from the slavery to sin. And having paid that price, sustained ownership of us, not as our slave master, but as our father. He said, I'm paying for you, I'm buying you out of your slavery, and I'm going to adopt you as my child.
something very few people know about Andrew Jackson. Was it Andrew? No, not, who was it that we went and visited? Jefferson Davis. Sorry, I always get those two confused. I don't know why. Jefferson Davis, who led the South during the Civil War. Well, very few people knew about Jefferson Davis was that he had adopted one of his slave's boys. There's a statue of him and his son at his summer house that we visited. And this is what God has done. He's come in and said, I pay the price for your slavery, your sin, your rebellion, your pride, your stubbornness. I'll pay the price and I'm going to send my son and and we now that it's been 4,000 years before Christ comes, we, we recognize what a powerful price demand our sin requires. That this price is, is precious. That it is exclusive. That it's not just rare, it's exclusive. There's only one who could ever pay this price. None other could ever pay it for us. In 4,000 years, while there were great men and despicable men, um, none of them could pay the price. Not Moses, not the law, not Samuel, not David. None of them. He paid the price for my sin, but he didn't just make me a slave in his kingdom. He made me his child. He adopted me. And he gave me an inheritance. This is the kind of gift God gives by the power of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And this Luke wants to describe, and, and um, I probably should take some time to go through and look at the idea of redemption through chapter 1 and chapter 2. I encourage you to do that. I'm just going to do the conclusion of it with Anna in chapter 2, verse 38. It says, and this is Anna coming in, and she's coming in just as Simeon is doing his thing. So she gets to hear Simeon, and she comes in, and here's the what Simeon has to say is he's holding this child and and giving this uh, blessing upon Mary and and all of this. And here comes Anna in just at that instant, verse thirty-eight. And coming in at that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke to him of him. To all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Do you get the picture? Do you think Luke had ever heard Galatians 4, 4, and 5? <laughs> He's going to keep hammering redemption. Redemption. You've been purchased. What have you been purchased out of? Bondage. Who bound you? The law. So why would you go back to the shackles? When not only have you been set free from those shackles, you've been brought into the very intimate family of God that he calls you sons with an inheritance. Why would you go back into slavery? And so Luke, in his narrative, drills this into Theophilus' psyche and into our minds as we look at redemption 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 we are here to be redeemed we are here to be consoled we are here to to receive this purchase price for our sin 
that we might be released from our slavery, but more, be brought into the family of God. And this, couched in between all of these verses about our childhood and slavery, of stewardship, um, and of heirs, being heirs of God in verse 7, um, we find that out of not our good deeds, not our faith really gets the glory, um, but rather it is the work of Christ that we look at, well, he paid the price, and now I'm his child. How do I know I'm his child? Not because I keep the law, not because I go back. Uh, nobody proves to me that they're my kid by going and tying themselves up with ropes and saying my dad has to lead me around. If, if, if I had to lead my kids around church by being tied by a rope, you would say, are those your kids or your slaves? What's the deal with that? Why would you do that? You call yourself a child of God, and then you want to tie yourself up in ropes and chains and drag yourself around by an external law when the God says, listen, you're my son, and I'm sending my spirit, and he's the one. So we find this wonderful gift brought to bear in our life that we are reminded of it because His Spirit comes and speaks in our heart and says, Father, Abba, Father, Daddy. Ultimately, the truly unrebellious, the true believer, the the one who is genuinely um, given over and recognizes this wonderful gift, responds because the Spirit works in our hearts and we come to the Father and say, Daddy, what can I do for you? What would you like for me today, Dad? How can I serve you? How can I show my love for you? How can I obey you? And that's not an external law that, oh, I'm going to be judged. No, it's an internal power voice of the spirit that cries within us Abba Father he's your father don't you want to please him and that's very different that internal work of the Holy Spirit is very different than the external work of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin rights and judgment because what that does is say you're guilty you're guilty you're guilty you're guilty you're guilty that's what the Holy Spirit does to the world when we ask the spirit to convict the world we're asking God show them how guilty they are Evict the world of their sin, your righteousness, and a judgment to come. But with a believer, conviction is different. The Spirit works not from outside to condemn you and to make guilt, but rather from inside to swell up the relationship that is there and the intimacy that is intended and to say, it's your father. This is daddy. Don't you want to please him? He's loved you and he's given everything for you. Can't you serve him? And the only place that guilt has there is if we are in full rebellion to the one who has given us so much. And I don't know if that's really possible for one who has truly received Christ as their Savior. And so the evidence that you are truly a child of God, that you have received this one sent by God and his just the right time, born of a virgin who kept the law to buy us out of slavery, the proof 
isn't shackling yourself to the law again. The proof is the Spirit of God speaks within you. That you come to God not as one, as your judge, but as your Father. Not as an external one that you're fearful of and want to avoid, but rather as an intimate one that you want to commune with and have fellowship with. And so we come to God that way, which is far superior to the law. For we all know that it is a simple thing for a child to keep some commandments by the letter without a spirit of submission. And so when the spirit moves within us and we are submitting to the Father Obedience and righteousness will be the end result, but it is not tied to the law. It is far, far superior to it because it is based upon a liberty of being free. Freed from the law, oh happy condition. I've been bought, freed, adopted, and now how can I do anything but seek to please him who has redeemed me? One born so long ago to die in my place that I might be brought into his very family. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the wonderful gift that you've given to us. And Lord, we acknowledge before you that we don't often recognize just how lavish your gift is. We take it for granted. But yet, Lord, it is wondrous and 6,000 years have proven the wonder of it when we consider the condition that you have redeemed us from. Lord, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ for being who he was, that he could do what he did to give us such a extensive redemption, deliverance, salvation. Thank you. Lord, help our celebrations this week to be filled with thanksgiving for the powerful and lavish gift of your Son. And we praise his in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.